Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We trust that your spirit will reveal Jesus to us in a way that is so profound and impactful to our spiritual growth that it would cause in us change, change into the likeness of Jesus. If we are not here for that, Father, then what are we here for? To be more like Christ. This is not just about worshiping you. This is about us becoming like your son. This is our sanctification. This is our spiritual growth. This is not entertainment. This is life. This is doing life together corporately as a congregation. And I pray that you would bless the gathering of your people in such a profound way that as we leave this morning, your word will take hold of our hearts and change who we are to be more like you. And only you can do that work. And you make a promise to us that if we trust you, you will. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So we're in Colossians. Uh, if you are new here, haven't been here before, um, we just started uh, our adventure in the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So Colossians 1, 6 through 8. Famous pastor, theologian, and reformer, John Calvin, said, The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. The gospel is not just a biblical truth that we talk about, or preach about, or discuss in Bible study or in life groups. The gospel is an activity that we do. I mean, we, def we have defined the gospel here at Grace Church in many ways. We've defined the gospel as the doctrine and the truth that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. We've defined the gospel as God himself. God is the gospel. The gospel is the good news. That's what the word gospel means. It comes from the word goad, spell. Goad meaning good, spell meaning tell. So good tell, good news. And the good news is that you get God through Christ, that you get God in Christ. That's the good news. So God is the gospel. The gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is this entire book because it tells us about God. But the gospel is also an activity. It's a, it's a tree that bears fruit. It is an active and living thing that is taking place in your life because if God is the gospel and you have Christ in you and the spirit is working in you and on you and through you, then you have the gospel actively working in you. So the gospel is also an activity. It is the way we live out the life and the heartbeat of Christ because he is the gospel. The gospel is our source of eternal life. The gospel is our source of this temporal, earthly life. The gospel is our source against sin the gospel is our source for holiness and the gospel is the foundation of your entire life but is it i mean really like for you is it 
Is that what the gospel really is for you? Because I think if I asked you if that's the gospel for you, you would say, especially if your pastor's asking you, oh yeah, absolutely, that's, that's definitely what the gospel is. We say it, but is it for you? I mean, you say we believe the gospel, do you tell it to lost people? You say you believe the gospel, do we even talk about it amongst each other? Do you think about the gospel? Do you learn about the gospel outside of Sunday service? Do you grow in the gospel? Do you even care about the gospel? Do you contemplate the gospel? Do you pray about the gospel? Do you talk to God about the gospel? Do you have conversations about the gospel? Are you thinking about the gospel? Do you know what the gospel does for you today? Because I think we think the gospel is this thing in the past that saved us and that's it. But do you know what it's doing today? Are we so busy that we don't even think about why we are doing what we're doing. I think we live in a culture and we have a mentality that we do things just to do them. And we can justify doing them because they're good things. But do we think about why we're doing them? Are we so busy with ministry that we don't even think about the fact that this ministry is for the gospel and from the power of the gospel? Here's my real question. How gospel-centric are you? Because when you walk away from service today and someone says, what was the sermon about? You say, I don't know, but you used the word gospel like 75 times in the first three minutes. <laughs> Good. That's the takeaway, Right? That, that's, that's my goal. I want you to hear it and think about it and see it and ask yourself, contemplate, examine yourselves. Am I gospel-centric? I think we do a lot of things that we think are good, but because they're not gospel-driven, they do not produce gospel fruit. And then we wonder why we aren't making any progress. So my aim today is to help you tangibly do actual gospel work so you can grasp actual gospel fruit. So our text is Colossians 1, 6 through 8. But these verses feed off of verse 5. This is what verse 5 says. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So over the last few weeks, as we ventured through verses 3 through 8, what we see at the center of that chunk of text is the gospel right in the middle, verse 5. It is the foundation of the text. Verses 3 through 4, verses 3 and 4 are all gospel fruit. And at the center, at the root of that fruit, is the gospel. And then verses 6 through 8, at the root of that fruit in 6 through 8, is the gospel. This is all gospel-centered. This is Paul's desire to begin this letter to the Colossians, expressing to them the gospel is at the center of everything. And then when we get into the next verses, especially when we get to verse like 15, we see the gospel, and I mean this word literally, the gospel come to life in Christ. And so... We've got all this gospel fruit here in our verses five, or verses six through eight. And as I've explained a few weeks ago, it's not just the gospel that Jesus died on the cross and rose to life, but that the gospel has this continual, endless, constant impact on your life and in your walk with Christ. 
The gospel does not save you, secure your eternal life, and then just it floats off into space and you just grab it when you need to save somebody or share the gospel with them. The gospel, if it is God himself, is actively alive in you. That is really the root of what's going on here in these verses. And so what we see now in verses 6 through 8 is more fruit of that gospel that is still continually, endlessly working on every Christian, working in your sanctification. That word sanctification means spiritual growth. I think maybe just a, a quick detour really fast about some biblical terminology that might help us understand salvation in general. There are three words that help us understand what salvation is. The words are justification, sanctification, and does anyone know the last one? Glorification. Good. Yeah. You've probably heard those words. They're in the Bible. Okay. Justification is that moment where effectually experienced salvation. That day when you said, I got saved when I was six and my mom shared the gospel with me. That was my story. That was when I was justified. Once you're justified, begins a lifelong process called sanctification, which is spiritual growth. And then when we go home, whether it's Christ returns or we die or at the resurrection, however, that culmination, ultimately, it's in the resurrection of Christ or the return of Christ when we experience glorification, the fulfillment and completion of this salvation. So I say those terms to help you understand that justification, sanctification, and glorification, all three of those words can be, you, you could call each of them salvation. Together, those three words are salvation. So what we'll see later in Philippians 2 is Paul used the word salvation when he's referring to, actually referring to sanctification. But it's important to understand these words so that we understand that when we talk about our salvation, that this is a lifelong process that finds its culmination in our eternal life in Christ. So I think it's best to understand that so we understand the fruit. So in reading verses 6 through 8, I'm going to start by uh, reading the end of verse 5 so there's some contextual understanding. So, end of verse 5. The gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it, is, or as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The point of this entire text is to reveal that the gospel works. Now, we could use that word works in a couple different ways. And I use the word works to have two meanings. Okay? One, it means the gospel works to save people. Like, it's effective. It's not broken. When you share the gospel with a lost person, I'm not guaranteeing that every time you share the gospel with a lost person, they will get saved. My point is that the gospel still works. And that's what Paul is telling them. That the gospel still works. If, if we say it, it will be effective. It's not a broken gospel. It's not an old gospel that no longer makes sense. It's not irrelevant now to the times. It's always relevant because people are always sinners. And so the gospel works to save people. 
And the second way in which I mean the gospel works is that the gospel continues to work. It's an activity. It's a function that continues to work on those who are already saved. So let me summarize that in a different way. There are two ways in which the gospel works in verse 6. First, the gospel works on salvation. And second, the gospel works after your salvation. So first, let's see how the gospel works on salvation. In verse 6, Paul says that the gospel is working in the whole world and is bearing fruit and growing. Meaning the gospel works to save people when it's shared with unbelievers. And now, the point of this text is, not, Paul's not commanding us, like, hey, go spread the gospel. There are other Bible verses that make that abundantly clear that we should be spreading the gospel and building and growing God's kingdom by preaching, teaching, speaking, declaring, and sharing the gospel with a world that does not know Jesus as their Savior, with lost people who are sinners and think that they'll be fine. Very few people that you meet, if you tell them, have you heard about Jesus, will say, no, I haven't. Usually they have. And if you ask them, well, then, are you going to heaven? What do you think they're going to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've been a good person. That's the most common answer you're going to find. I've been a good person. And if you know the gospel, you know that ain't going to cut it. That's not enough. And so, though Paul is simply reporting to the Colossians, that the gospel is working, that it's at work, that it's spreading around the entire world. It's not just you, Colossians. You're not the only ones who are sharing the gospel. You're not the only community or town or church that is growing by the power and effectiveness and efficient work of the gospel. The entire world is being impacted. It's spreading all throughout Asia Minor and, in, and throughout Rome and, and, and south into Egypt and into the into the, the Middle East. It's, it's everywhere. It's growing. That's, that's his report to the Colossians. You're not alone. You're not the only ones doing this work. You're not the only ones suffering for the gospel. You're not the only ones facing heresy and false teaching that's trying to infiltrate the church. You're not the only ones struggling with internal church problems. You're not the only ones who need clarity on doctrine and understanding and, and, and the, theological matters. You're not alone, Colossians. So I'm telling you, you're not alone, Grace Church. This is not a new problem. It's existed for thousands of years. There's always heresies creeping in. There's always false doctrines that, that trick, trip us up. There's always persecution for the church. If we live righteously and in holiness and pursue Christ, there's always something to face as a church. And in the face of it all, in the face of all of that hardship, of all that difficulty, of all those circumstances, of all that drama, of all that church life and everything going on, they are still spreading the gospel. They aren't hiding behind a rock going, woe is me, this is hard and I don't like it and I just want to hide from the problems. They are saying to themselves, despite Despite the problems, despite the difficulty, despite the suffering, despite the hardships, we will spread this gospel news because it is worth dying for. Though you slay me, I will worship you. Though you ruin me, I will praise you still. Though you might even kill me, 
I will preach this gospel to a lost world still. Do you know that 90% of Christians have never, I'm sorry, that was the wrong stat. 95% of Christians have never led someone to the Lord. If there were 100 people in this room, that would mean only five have. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, that just means lots of people share the gospel, but, but nobody wants to believe it. That's the problem. No. You want to hear another stat? 80% of Christians have never shared the gospel with someone. I do not say that to you to shame you or to make you feel bad. Like, oh, we Christians are such bad people. You guys better pick it up and start, run out that door and start telling everyone the gospel. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to motivate you. And I, say, I tell you that stat to say this to you. There is a significant gap between what we say and what we do. And notice that I didn't say there's a significant gap between what we believe and what we do. No, no, I said there's a gap between what we say and what we do because what you do is what you believe. So another way to say it is there is a big gap between what we say we believe and what we actually believe. That's the problem. So why does the gap, why is there a gap? Why does the gap exist between what we say and what we do or what we say we believe and what we actually believe? I think the answer is, and I think this answer is multifaceted and I, we could come up with a bunch of reasons a bunch of points as to why that gap exists, but I think it all comes down to one primary issue. We don't know the Bible. We don't know the Bible. We talk about a God in ways that the Bible doesn't talk about God. And I hear people say things about God, and I'm like, Where, where'd you find that? That's not in the Word. We don't know it. Like, listen, I get it. All of us are deficient in Bible knowledge. Okay, I went to school, I was just in the bathroom, we were leaving the bathroom and was in there with a the guy and I said, how are you doing? He says, oh good, but school is killing me. I said, dude, I just finished 11 years of school after high school. 11 years of biblical knowledge being full time too, being poured into my brain and I got done and I said, I think I know even less now. It's so exhausting. And so, studying the Bible full-time, been a pastor for 15 years, been, been you know, I, got, I just got two Bible degrees, and you'd think I would know a ton about the Bible. And every time I go into it, I'm like, have I never read that? I never, I text Christian like every other day. I'm like, dude, have you read this verse? Like, did you read this? And he's like, yeah, I've read that verse. So like, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's crazy. All of us are deficient. If you're thinking, well, we're deficient, but the pastors aren't. Yeah, we are. We all are. Some of us maybe know more than others. There's plenty of people who know more than me. All of us lack understanding of God. Okay? But... There is a chest that is filled with gold and treasures beyond your wildest imagination. And we just kind of like 
throw it to the side and spend time on copper and silver when there's gold. There's so much to learn and know about God and his word, and we don't spend time. We don't know him. That's the point. I don't want to, what I don't want you hearing from me today is you have to know your Bible. That's not the message. The message is you have to know Christ. You have to know Jesus. You have to know God. And you're not going to know him unless you read your Bible. It's that simple. Now, you know it's not that simple because it's a very complex book about a very complex God who's beyond our imagination. So there is much complexity in the studying of God's word and knowing God. I get that. But the activity of spending time in it is not hard. It is a matter of what you believe. So this is an issue, this is a lesser matter about what you do. It's more a matter of what you believe. What you believe will affect the way you live. What you think will affect the way you live. Your perception of God will affect the way you make decisions. How you respond to your wife Losing a child in childbirth will be dependent on what you believe about God. How you feel and respond to the death of your child. How you feel and respond to getting in a car accident. How you feel and respond and what you believe about why you lost your job in the middle of a pandemic is all influenced by what you believe about God. And for people who don't believe in God, that influences how they behave. We have to know the word because it determines what we believe about God and what we believe about God determines how we live out the gospel. And if you want gospel fruit in your life, you have to know God. The second way in which the gospel works is after salvation. Verse 6 says, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. So it's bearing fruit and growing, not only in the whole world, but where else? As it also does among you. That's the church. That's you. The gospel is not just growing worldwide as it, as it spreads and people get saved. The gospel is producing fruit, bearing fruit and growing in the church. The only way that could happen is if the gospel is still alive and active and working in us. So it's not just Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. It's the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave that is still applied to your heart because the gospel is still active and working and that is the security you have in Christ. 
The gospel not only works on unbelievers, it also works on believers. It continues to work through you for your spiritual growth and development into Christ-likeness. It has to. It has to. You, you can't be saved or stay saved if the gospel is not alive and active and working still in you and on you and through you. Our eternal life is secured in a very specific way. And that way is Jesus transforming us into his likeness. We need perfection. That is the requirement for eternal life. God cannot receive us imperfect. We have to be perfected. Christ has already achieved that, and that already is secured for us in the future. But right now, we live in the not yet, that experience of this. I, I, I'm not, I don't feel perfect. My experience in life isn't perfection, and that is sanctification. That is the gospel remaining applied to you and to your life and to your mind and to your heart and to your thoughts and to your beliefs in such a way that God uses it to chisel you, to break you down, to, as David says in Psalm 51, break my bones and then heal me. Create in me, Lord, a new heart. We need the gospel to continue to work because that continual work transforms us into the perfection of Christ, which we will finally get in glorification. In Ephesians 5, 26 through 27, in comparing marriage to the gospel, Paul reveals what Jesus does to the church. Listen to what Jesus does to the church. This is one of my favorite Bible verses. Or you just take a moment before we even start reading this to just think about, especially wives, wives especially you, think about what it's like to have a loving husband. A man who cares for you, blesses you, invests in you, cherishes you, serves you, gives to you, sacrifices for you. It's pretty awesome, right? I don't know. I don't have a husband. But it's pretty awesome, right? I have a wife that does those things for me, and I think that's awesome. I want you to think about Christ that way. And I think this is harder for men. I think it's easy for women because Jesus himself is a man. It's easy to think of him playing a husband role in their lives. For men, it's kind of weird to think about having a husband who is Christ, but it's an image, it's a, it's a metaphor that, that the Bible uses to help us understand the relationship that we have with Christ. There is no greater intimacy in any human relationship that exists that compares to the intimacy between Jesus Christ and his church, his love and his compassion and his desire for you, his pity for, your, for you in your sin, his, his gentleness in your hardships. His love and his sacrifice for you. His power to work in you and for you. Like, I want you to, before we read these verses, to think about this man. He's a man. Yes, he's God, but he's this man who loves you in ways you just don't get. That I just don't get. We get it up here, but we just, it's beyond our experience. And so there is no lack of fullness in loving him and being loved by him. So listen to how he treats you. Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. Husbands, would you die for your wife? My wife and I have talked about this. She's like, if it's between saving me and saving the kids, she's like, save the kids. Because if you save me and you let the kids die, I'm, I'm never going to like you again. <laughs> Are you willing to give yourself up for the people you love? This is what Christ does for us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might, so that, that's us getting saved. He died on the cross for our sins. That's justification. When we believe that, that Christ loved us and died for us, we get justified. Okay, why? That, so that, so here's the reason, that he might do what? Sanctify her. How? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That is God sanctifying you with this. That is your Christian life. That is the totality of your Christian life. You and the Bible. That's life as a Christian. You and your Bible. You get sanctified by the washing of water from the word. Husbands, that's your role with your wives. And I will say, if you don't sanctify your wife with the washing of the word, that's probably because you're not spending enough time getting sanctified by Christ in the washing of the word. That's a problem. So why does he sanctify us? So we already have justification, right? Loved us, gave himself up for us. Why? To sanctify us, right? To wash us in his word, sanctify us with the word. What's that produce? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That is glorification. That day when we're presented to Christ by Christ as perfect and holy and spotless and without blemish and the perfect perfection and righteousness of Jesus himself, that's the work that he's doing in you today. And I don't know about you, but I want to get there faster. I want to grow faster. I want to know him better. Listen, the reason my wife and I are still married is because we are learning to love each other. You know, my relationship with my wife is completely dependent on my continual affection for her, our continual communication about expectations, our continual development in loving each other, learning about her, going on dates, having conversations, dis dis uh, disciplining our children, making decisions together, going to church, doing ministry together, being in life groups together. There are an endless number of things that Husbands and wives do together that increase their love. So if I told my wife, and I've said, I've used this analogy a million times here, but if I told my wife, I'm going away for a year, I'll see you in a year, and she says, why? And I say, because I feel like it, and I just leave for a year, and I come back a year later, are we going to be closer at that point? No. She might have a new husband. No, I'm just kidding. My, my point is, you can't expect to have a healthy, flourishing, growing gospel 
fruit-producing, loving relationship with Jesus if you don't learn about him or know him better or grow in love for him, and you'll never get there if you're not in the word. Because it sanctifies you. That is the continual and effectual work of Jesus, or the gospel, on you and in you. So, question. What does that mean for us today? Right? Like, what is the real... If the gospel is doing the work, if, if God is the gospel, so God is doing the sanctifying work on me, then what is my role? Because I don't control, and I can't control what God does. And I don't determine how God chisels me into the image and likeness of Christ. I don't know what thing God needs to work on. I don't even know how to pray, Romans 8. So I need the Holy Spirit to intercede and pray for me. So I certainly don't know what I need and my sanctification. I could probably tell you and identify a certain number of sins that I have in my life that I struggle with or, or battle against or fight. You know, and, and with those sins, I could say those are things I need to work on and I could go work on them. But I don't know what God's going to do to me next because how many times in your life have you been surprised by something that was hard? Probably often. You didn't ask for it. You didn't ask for that specifically, but you asked God, all right, God, I want to grow. Work on me. What do you want me to do? I submit myself to you. Have it your way, God. Take over my life or do as you please. And then he does as he pleases. And we're like, well, not that. My grandpa once told me a story. He said, careful what you wish for. He said, when I was a kid, I asked God to let me have a whole week off of school. And he said, the next week, I got it. Because my dad was in an accident and had to spend a week in the hospital in a coma. Not what he asked for. But he got what he asked for. So my point isn't, be careful what you wish for. My point is, if you really want to ask God to work on you, it's probably not what you're thinking. That takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of belief in your heart and in your mind to trust God. We don't always know what God's going to do. So we just have to let him do what he's going to do. And so the question is, what's my role? What do I do? And the answer, I think, is really found in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. This here, Paul writes, work out your own salvation. Now, I'm going to refer back to those theological terms we discussed, justification, sanctification, and glorification. This word salvation here refers to sanctification. Work out that justification into sanctification for glorification. That's what Paul's saying. Work Work out that entire salvific process with fear and trembling. That's our role. Here's God's role. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works on you, and you work on you. 
I think that's easy to believe. I, I don't feel like I'm teaching anybody something new when, when we say that. I, I think you're probably going, yeah, I know, God can does as he please, right? Um, man makes his plans, but God establishes his steps. That's a biblical reality that we all probably maybe know and understand and believe. You know, I'm, I'm going to make plans, I'm going to work towards things, I'm going to work on my own spiritual life, work on my own sanctification, but God's ultimately going to have his way. I think most of us would agree with that. I think we would agree that we join God in our sanctification. Even though he's a sovereign God, part of his sovereignty is to use us ourselves as the means by which we are sanctified. So the real question, though, is how? Right? What's the real, tangible, practical, applicable take home? I can pick this up out of the Bible and do it today. What is the how? How do I get sanctified today? I think there are two primary ways. I think there's many ways. We could spend a ton of time there. I'm going to tell you what I think are the two primary ways. So two primary ways we participate in our own sanctification. Number one, hate sin. Hate sin. I think Christians get a bad rap as people who hate things, right? Right? Oh, Christians are just anti-being drunk, anti-drugs, anti-abortion, anti-government this and anti-that or anti-anti-anti, just against everything. They're anti-Nike shoes because of some guy made a Nike shoe that had like devil horns on it. That's a real story, by the way. And then I heard it, saw a bunch of Christians like, oh, protest Nike. And I'm like, yeah, are you going to protest Google? What about Starbucks, Facebook, Amazon? Can you imagine if you just couldn't order on Amazon anymore? Could you even live? I think we'd all die. What about your iPhone, Apple? All of those companies, and I'm not here to bash those companies. My point is all of those companies have publicly declared their desire to support biblical, or things that the Bible calls sin. And they stand behind them. So, let's not be anti-stuff. Listen, we live in a sinful world. We're going to participate in, with people and in things that adhere to sin. It's part of life. It's part of getting along. I'm not telling you where to draw your lines in the sand. But I'm telling you, if you're going to draw lines in I think you should start being consistent, right? So, I say all that just to say that though I do not like the, oh, Christians are anti-blank, that, that, that whole stigma we have, there is one thing we ought to be known for, and it is our hatred for sin. We're so, and I think we're afraid to, to, to hate sin in front of non-believers, Right? Because we don't want to perpetuate that, that perception that, we have, that they have of us like, oh, I don't, I don't do that. And if I tell that person, I don't do that, then they're going to think, oh, you're one of those goody two-shoe Christians. Don't do anything fun. Like, I don't do anything fun. Are you kidding me? Christianity is the funnest time of your life. We literally just decided that the first deacon we needed was Will because he's the deacon of fun because that's what Christianity is. 
Okay, he's the deacon of fellowship, but behind closed doors, he's the deacon of fun. So, the point is that, like, we're afraid to honestly, like, hate sin in front of non-Christians because then we'll look like these, you know, anti-fun, goody-two-shoe, don't like to take a stand on the gospel kind of people. Because it might offend them. It's supposed to offend them. If it doesn't offend them, they'll never believe it. It has to offend their sin. If it doesn't offend their sin, they can't believe it. We have to take a stand for truth. We have to hate sin publicly in wisdom and with discretion and discernment. I'm telling you, just run around and start hating all the sins in the world and you know, go on Facebook and be like, I hate all sins. You know, like just there are wise ways to do it. But where is the desire and motivation to hate sin? Look at Romans 6, 11. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus, for sin will have no dominion over you. I think the greatest insult you could ever say to someone's face is this. You're dead to me. Is there anything worse? There's nothing worse. Because you're literally saying, you are non-existent to my life. I hate you so much that to me, you don't even exist. There's no greater insult. You're dead to me. That is exactly what Paul says in Romans 6.11. That you should feel and think and say to your sin. Sin, you are dead to me. Why? Because I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin, you are dead to me because you will no longer have dominion over me. You will not rule me. And verse 18 says, we have been set free from sin. I'm free from the yoke of slavery to sin. I'm free in Christ. The context of those verses in Romans 6 are all about our power in Christ to overcome acts of sin and habits of sin in your life. Meaning the gospel doesn't just save you. It is available to you as the instrument that you use today to fight against your sin, to battle sin, to overcome sin that is dragging you down. Sin that has established a stronghold behind the walls of your heart. But you can't make war with sin if you don't hate it first. You have to hate sin. You just have to. It's the nature of Christ. It's the reason he walked in the temple and flipped over tables. His hatred for sin was not just the angry Jesus, the righteously angry Jesus. His hatred for sin was also the reason he loved and served and died because he hates sin. It's the nature of who he is. And the more we become like him, the more we will hate sin. So I want to motivate you to hate sin. And in a minute, I'm going to tell you how to hate sin. The actual, practical, tangible, what do I do? If I want to start hating sin, what do I do to hate it? Do I just have to like muster up this courage like, I really hate you, sin? Is it just like a feeling? What do I do? I'll tell you in a minute. You have to hate your flesh. You have to hate your flesh. You have to identify your sin specifically. Okay? (laughs) Don't be vague. Christians are so good at being vague and general, aren't we? Oh, I hate sin. Oh, I'm such a sinner. 
right? We talk about, oh, I'm just a sinner, saved by grace, God's good. Really? What's your sin? Oh, we don't talk about that, that's personal. Right? Like, we don't want to go that far. I love to be general and vague. Oh, I'm such a wicked person. Oh, I hate sin. Sin's bad. I don't like that sin. Oh, I don't want to do sins. We just talk about sin in general, but do you ever, ever really identify your sin? What is your sin? Do you hate your sin? Your, my sin? Do I hate my sin? The sin that Mark Barlow struggles with every day. I, I, as your pastor, I care about you and your sin too. But apart from that role in my life as a pastor, as just a Christian man, I can't worry about you and your sin and how you feel about your sin. I have to hate mine. I'm not making war against your sin. I have to make war against my sin. I have to fight against the things that steal my attention and my affection from Jesus Christ. I have to tear down the idols in my life. I have to identify them. I have to declare war against them. And I have to specifically go after them. I have to go to battle against them. I got to bring the word. I got to kneel in prayer. I got to get discipled. I got to confess my sins to a trusted friend. I got to share it. I got to be held accountable. The victory, I get it, the victory is already yours in Christ. The sin is already conquered. And that's the only reason why you can hate your sin and fight against it. Because it has been beaten. And Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy and Acts 20 of this. Finish the race. That is your role. To hate sin. Number two, the second primary way we participate in our own sanctification is this. Strive for holiness. So those are the two practical things you can do. Hate your sin and strive for holiness. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for holiness. That's where I got this one from. <laughs> okay? This means actually doing what you believe instead of just believing what you believe or just thinking what you believe or just saying what you believe but not actually doing it. It means doing it. You, you, you confess you're a believer. You say you're, you're holy in Christ. You know you're imperfect and you're a sinner, but you're saved by grace and you're trying and you're working. That's kind of the mentality that every Christian has. And I'm telling you, break out of it. There's more for you in Christ. There is more than just, oh, I'm just a sinner who struggles with life and I'm just getting by and I love God and I'm trying to be good. And, you know, it's not my goodness. It's the goodness of Christ in me. All that's true. But break free from that in the sense that I mean, like, run after holiness. Pursue it. This word is strive, expresses, in the Greek, expresses an actual yearning, like a stressor. Not in a negative sense, but in the way in which you lift weights when your muscles are under tension. It's arduous and difficult and powerful when you go after holiness. And that, that is how you hate your sin. You don't just decide, well, I'm going to hate adultery. Yeah, I hate adultery. I hate sin. Well, yeah, duh. Like, every Christian knows that that's not okay and it's sin. Of course we're supposed to hate that. How do you go after that? How do you protect yourself from adultery? What do you do to fight against it? Or whatever the sin might be. You have to strive for holiness. That's how you hate your sin. You, here's the thing. Even an unbeliever, even an unbeliever can choose to stop doing an action that is sinful. Does that make them holy? No. 
Christ makes you holy. So just stopping sin doesn't really do anything other than make you feel better about your relationship with God, which is legalism. Because your relationship with Jesus has nothing to do with your behavior and has everything to do with the blood of Jesus Christ. So I'm not telling you to just stop sinning. Hate your sin and stop doing it. I am telling you that not sinning is not the goal. Holiness is the goal. That's how we hate our sin. This means studying the word, praying, having other believers hold you accountable with your struggles, being discipled, identifying your sin, and finding a solution to your sin that is holy and righteous and good. Striving for holiness is not our effort to earn God's favor. Striving for, ho- for holiness is our effort from God's favor, to reflect God's favor. We don't work for salvation. We work from salvation. We don't fight for the gospel. That was Christ. He already did that. We fight from the gospel. That is our role and our sanctification. This is, this is our role in using the gospel today hate our sin, and strive for holiness. The gap between what we say and what we do exists because we don't believe what we say. We say we hate sin, but we don't wage war against our sin. We say we want holiness, but we don't pursue holiness. We don't strive for holiness. We don't go to church. We don't study the Bible. We don't pray. We don't love well. We don't serve. We don't give. We don't sacrifice. That's not holiness. We are hearers and sayers only. That's not holiness. That's Judas. You hate your sin by striving for holiness. That is the gospel at work in you today. And when you do that, because you genuinely believe that gospel, you will garner unimaginable gospel fruit. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you. We trust your gospel We trust that you will produce in us a motivation, desire, passion, concern, care, and a want to get into your word, to know you, to grow in you, to strive for and pursue holiness as it develops our hatred for our sin so we can battle our sin and live for you and live like you and become like you and be sanctified. That's our desire, to know you more. You are the treasure. We want more of you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.